You're listening to Climate Rising, an official podcast of Harvard Business School's Business and Environment Initiative. Before we get into today's episode, let me tell you about a new HBS online course called Business and Climate Change that we've just launched. In this five-week asynchronous online course, you'll learn the tools and tactics companies around the world are using to become more resilient to droughts, floods, wildfires, and storms, and how they're engaging in mitigation to reduce their emissions. This course enables you to leverage those insights to inform your own organization's strategy. Learn more and apply at the HBS online website or at hbs.me slash business and climate change. Now, on to Climate Rising. So we believe one of the mechanisms we need to address climate change is we need to be paying down the principle. We need to be putting CO2 back where it came from, underground. It didn't come from trees. It didn't come from the biosphere. It came from underground. To solve the problem, we've got to put it back underground. I'm Rebecca Emanuel, and this is Climate Rising, a podcast from Harvard Business School. We explore the business implications and opportunities of climate change. This season of Climate Rising, we focus on entrepreneurship tackling climate change. I'm the Director of Social Entrepreneurship at Harvard Innovation Labs. I work with current and future entrepreneurs every day. Many of the entrepreneurs we've spoken with this season are launching technologies or business models that produce less carbon than the status quo approaches. Whether that's leather made from mushrooms instead of cows, or vehicles that run on electricity instead of fossil fuels. Other guests are finding new ways to finance those tech or business solutions. Today, we're talking about something different. We're speaking with Steve Oldham, CEO of Carbon Engineering. Steve is tackling climate change by developing a technology that captures carbon that's already in the air. The potential benefits of this approach are huge. But as we'll hear, there's still quite a few hurdles to overcome. I started by asking him about how the technology works. And that meant picturing a bathtub. Yeah, so when I first started at Carbon Engineering, uh, it was this bathtub analogy that made me really recognize why we have to do direct air capture. So let me try and explain that simply for you. So I think of the atmosphere as a bathtub. And we have the taps are running, the faucets are running. We are filling the bathtub with water just as we're filling the atmosphere with CO2. And just as, you know, if that was the, the bathtub in your bathroom, you would get more and more concerned as the volume of water in the bathtub goes up and up and up. So what would you do in that case? Well, it's pretty obvious what you'd do. You would run over and you'd turn off the taps. And that's what we do when we think about reducing emissions. We turn off the tap so that we're no longer putting more CO2 in the atmosphere and more water in the bathtub. But here's the problem. This bathtub has billions of taps, and they're all flowing. Some of them are slowly reducing, some of them are increasing. And the water in the bathtub is going up and up and up. And I don't think we can turn off every single one of those taps. So luckily, the bathtub industry figured out this problem early on. And what did they do about it? They put a plug in every bathtub. So if you couldn't turn off the taps in your bathroom, you just simply yank out the plug and the water would go down. So can we have a plug in the atmosphere? Can we pull out water directly from the bathtub, just as we do um, you know, in our houses here? And direct air capture does that for you. It provides a plug 
that allows us to drag CO2 straight out of the atmosphere and allows us to offset the fact that we might not be able to turn off every single tap. Excellent. So I'll think about that next time I'm taking a bath. <laughs> so can, so so you're the head of carbon engineering. Can you just tell us a little bit more about carbon engineering's model for this direct air capture plug in the bathtub? Maybe just walk us through how it works. Yeah. So to go back to kind of first principles, CO2 in the atmosphere is about 400 parts per million today. And again, to give people a simple analogy, that's the equivalent of one drop of ink in a swimming pool. So removing CO2 from the atmosphere is actually technically quite challenging. And to do it at an affordable price point is even more challenging. So what Carbon Engineering has done as a company over 11 years, we're 11 years old, has been to develop a technological solution for stripping CO2 from the atmosphere at very large scale and at low cost. And by doing so, you're doing two things. You're offsetting an emission that's occurring somewhere else. You know, just the equivalent of having your tap running, but with the plug out at the same time. The second thing you're doing is you're building a tool that once we get to net zero and once we stop emissions, we can eliminate yesterday's CO2 and the day before and the day before that. And when you talk to the climate scientists, they'll tell you that we have about 800 gigatons of excess CO2 in the atmosphere. And we're making the problem worse by about 40 gigatons every year. So the ability to have this plug, this ability to pull CO2 out of the atmosphere is going to become absolutely critical. What does it look like if I'm standing next to your machine? Yeah, so um, I guess the best way to think of it is the first step of our process is essentially a large fan. And that fan runs, it pulls air into our machine, into our system. Um, we then have a series of chemical reactions. We have a four-step process and we use you know, high school chemistry to extract CO2 through chemical reaction. And then once we've extracted the CO2, we remake our chemicals that did the absorbing in the first place. So this is a very critical part of um, developing a solution at large scale. You know, how do you get the cost down? You get the cost down by reusing the same material over and over again to capture CO2. So a plant looks like a one of our plants looks like a chemical plant. You know, it's pretty large scale. It's about um, 80 acres in size. One of our plant captures uh, a megaton of atmospheric CO2 per, per year. That's the CO2 capturing equivalent of about 40 million trees. So it's, uh, these, these plants are large, look like industrial plants, um, but are completely clean. And so you capture this carbon and then where does it go? So two things, fundamentally, um, you can either put the CO2 back underground. And when you do so, you create what we call a negative emission because you're offsetting somebody else's positive emission. And when you think about climate change, our climate change problem has occurred because we took CO2 out of the ground and put it straight into the atmosphere. So to solve the problem, we need to do the opposite. Take CO2 out of the atmosphere and put it back underground again. So you can bury CO2 underground, it's safe, it's an established process, it's auditable, you can, you, can, um, you can measure exactly how much CO2 you're putting underground. So that's option number one, put it back underground and offset emissions. Option number two is to use CO2 as a product. 
So an example of that that we do at Carbon Engineering is we combine our CO2 with hydrogen and we make a hydrocarbon. A hydrocarbon can be fossil fuels uh, equivalent. So for example, kerosene, uh, diesel, gasoline. Except when we make that fuel, we've removed its carbon footprint from the atmosphere in advance. So the fuel is essentially carbon neutral. And when you put fuel in a vehicle and the fuel is carbon neutral, the vehicle became carbon neutral. So that's an example of how you can use atmospheric CO2 to reduce emissions here on the, here on the planet. So you're either putting things down the bathtub drain or you are, have a closed loop. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's a great way to say it. This all sounds a little energy intensive and isn't using too much energy part of our problem. So there are things that you, you have to accept in, in solving this problem. And for sure, you know, we use energy, but the atmosphere is everywhere. Air is everywhere. So we put our plants where uh, renewable energy is available, but isn't used today. And there is a lot of places on the planet where that is the case. The first plant we're building is in, is, uh, in uh, the Permian Basin in the United States. It's in a relatively remote location. Nobody there demands electricity, but there is renewable electricity available. So yes, it's energy intensive, but we're using additional energy that frankly would not be used uh, for any other purpose. We're building our own energy plants alongside our direct air capture plants. Bring me back to these trees. Um, how do you compare what you're doing, so carbon engineering technology, to other forms of carbon capture, other ways of taking carbon from the air and putting it in something? Sure. So let me start by being absolutely clear on something. We support all mechanisms and tools that can address the climate change problem. We're all parents. We all care about the future of, of our planet. We are supportive of every mechanism that reduces our carbon footprint. But I want, uh, you, know, you asked about trees, and I, I'm happy to talk about trees. Trees, of course, are a cheap way to start reducing CO2 emissions, but they're not permanent. That's the sad, unfortunate reality. So over a, about a 50-year period, an 80-acre forest of trees would capture about 4,000 tons of CO2. In the same time period, our plant would capture 50 million tons of CO2. We simply don't have the land area to plant enough trees to deal with the problem. We need that land area to feed ourselves. We have enough of a problem maintaining the current level of trees we have, let alone planting another 3 trillion trees to help address the climate change problem. So we absolutely support tree planting, but uh, you know, I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll, give, I'll give an analogy that may sound harsh, but it's, but it's accurate. Planting trees is like pay, paying the interest on your mortgage and telling your kids that they have to pay the principal. And so sure, that's a way of which you can minimize the impact today, but you're just pushing the problem into the future. Trees die, and when they die, they return their CO2 to the atmosphere. So we believe one of the mechanisms we need to address climate change is we need to be paying down the principle. We need to be putting CO2 back where it came from, underground. It didn't come from trees. It didn't come from the biosphere. It came from underground. To solve the problem, we've got to put it back underground. 
Great. So let's talk about these dollars and cents since I, I like your mortgage metaphor here. Um, can you tell me what carbon engineering's model is from a business standpoint? How do you get money and from who? Yeah. So the first thing I, I always say to people, and I say this to every investor who's approached us and put money into the company, if you don't believe that there is a cost to climate change, don't invest in our company uh, and our company will, will fail. You know, there is, in my mind, a very clear cost to climate change. And if there is a cost to climate change, there is a value in preventing it. You and I will both take out house insurance, car insurance. Across the planet, we take out insurance against multiple, multiple different eventualities. We are faced today with a similar problem. We need to spend money today to prevent the future impact of climate change. It's a choice. I hope it's a choice that we make correctly. So our business absolutely depends on people recognizing that there is a value in eliminating carbon. So how that value is realized depends on policy. So in some jurisdictions, you have a carbon tax. In other jurisdictions, you have a carbon credit. You're starting to see companies and individuals personally spending money to eliminate their carbon footprint because their shareholders or their customers are demanding it. So we require a carbon price through one mechanism or another to drive our business. And when you think about electric cars, when you think about renewable electricity, you know, as we have policies in place that support those activities. We have tax credits for renewable electricity. We have um, incentives for people to buy electric cars. These are ways of paying a carbon price. So we require the same thing. There are some jurisdictions that already have those policies in place, and it's those policies that provide the economics to allow us to build a plant. So I think a lot of people think about climate and finding solutions for climate change is really tricky. One thing that you've said is that you think actually it's relatively simple from a policy standpoint. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so um, the beauty of direct air capture is it's a completely ubiquitous solution. It allows you to eliminate any emission from any place on the planet of any type, and also, by the way, from any moment in time. And no amount of biofuels, electric cars, renewable energy, none of those things have that same capability. So when you accept that you have the ability to pull the plug out and you know the cost of pulling the plug out, the cost of eliminating emissions through direct air capture, now you have a baseline for what your worst case cost for eliminating a carbon footprint is. So let's say for sake of argument, that my cost to eliminate a ton of CO2 and put it permanently back underground is $100 per ton of CO2. So now you can establish a policy that basically says, if you can eliminate your footprint, industry, individual, country, for less than $100 a ton, go ahead and do so. And there are technologies that allow you to do so for sure, in certain cases. If you can't, or it's too expensive, Pay the government $100 a ton, and government will buy direct air capture and eliminate the emission for you. So that one policy, you set the carbon price at the cost of direct air capture, 
allows companies to innovate and find cheaper ways to do it, but it also guarantees that any emission is eliminated. So think of aviation. You know, what's the cost of eliminating emissions in aviation? It's huge. Columbia University just put out a study that said that the lowest cost is about $600 a ton to eliminate emissions at source in aviation. We're all going to invent electric planes, replace every plane in the world, all the airport infrastructure, all the, the fueling infrastructure. We're going to change all those things. Why? Why not instead have the government build a DAC facility, direct air capture facility, the airline industry pays the $100 a ton, cheaper than 600 and the emission is eliminated. And then you also talked a little bit about policies that right now are driving your business. Can you tell me a little bit about how that works now? So who do you sell to now? Who's buying captured carbon straight, as it were? Yeah, so a couple of policies in the United States that I would draw attention to that are that are very powerful and, and already exist and have been put together by you know very innovative people uh, seeking to address climate change. So at the federal level, we have a tax credit. Um, it's in the Section 45Q of the U.S. tax uh, code, and 45Q pays $50 a ton for CO2 buried underground. So if you're a business that take CO2 and buries it underground, you get a credit from the government on your tax of $50. And that's a good policy because many, many businesses pay tax and many, many businesses are keen to avoid paying more tax. So if they can find a way to eliminate um, their or reduce their tax bill, then they will do so through this type of mechanism. So that's one mechanism, a tax credit. At $50, it's too low to solve the problem but it goes a long way towards encouraging interest. Another example is um, the uh, state of California has a low carbon fuel standard and they're solving the problem a different way around. They're basically saying, you have to address the carbon footprint of the fuel that you use in California. California is the fifth largest economy in the world. So if you're selling fuel in California, the carbon intensity carbon footprint of that fuel has to reduce every single year up until 2030. So now make yourself the CEO of a company providing fuel to California. How do you reduce the carbon intensity of your fuel? If you use fossil fuel, you can't reduce its carbon intensity. It's 100% carbon intense. So you either buy credits from a company like ours, or you blend your fuel with a synthetic fuel like for example, our air to fuels uh, product that I talked about earlier on. And that way you reduce the carbon intensity. So in California, they create a market for companies to find the cheapest solution to reduce their carbon footprint in fuel. And that brings innovative solutions to the table. So it's the combination of those two policies that leads to us building that first plant today. The, the, the sum total of those policies exceeds our cost. And hence, we build a plant. So in some ways, you're at the very cutting edge of a market, it sounds like. You're creating something that's hugely valuable in drawing carbon out of the air, but there isn't yet a national or global agreement on the infrastructure yet. I guess the way that I, I think of it is our company's creating a tool. It's a very, very powerful tool. Our job is to demonstrate that it works 
It's, uh, I like to say it's feasible, available, and affordable. That's our job. We have the easy <laughs> job of doing Doesn't that. Doesn't that easy? The hard job <laughs> is the <laughs> the hard job is the people who then choose to use that tool and choose to make the compromises on you know, choice. What, what are we going to give up to spend the money on fixing climate change? Let me give you another example, COVID. So don't we all wish that two years ago, some scientist somewhere said, I'm going to spend my time and come up with a, with a vaccine for a new disease. And if, if we'd done that, that scientists would have produced that vaccine, governments would have it all ready to go, and we would have eliminated the pandemic that's so affecting us today. Well, the really, really big pandemic that's coming is climate change. It will have a massive impact on everybody's way of life. We have a vaccine. We know the solution. So are we going to make the choice to spend the money to fix this problem in advance or are we going to stumble into the dramatic changes that the pandemic has caused and see the same with climate change? So, Steve, here's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing that you've got a tool that's incredibly valuable and could help us fend off one of these huge coming waves of um, sort of pandemic equivalent with climate change. But the market isn't fully developed yet. And you are the CEO of a company and still need to make money now. And so you're selling both captured carbon straight and this um, air to fuel. Tell me a little bit about who's buying now. I heard that Shopify's buying and Arion's buying. Yeah, so so first let me let me correct a perception. Okay. Regrettably, we're not making money today. <laughs> you know, we're we're still pre-revenue. We are starting to get customers though. And as you point out, those customers are, are very important for us. So, you know, where are they coming from, what they're doing? So, you know, what I am beginning to see, and it's really encouraging, is companies that are far thinking, either because they are socially responsible companies looking at what they can do for the planet, or because they are under pressure from shareholders, their customers, their employees, to do something about climate change. They are starting to think ahead about what makes the most sense. So some companies, and Shopify is a great example, let's talk about them for a minute. Shopify recognized that carbon removal is going to become essential. Direct air capture is therefore gonna become essential and they like what they see from carbon engineering. So they're starting with the end in mind. They're recognizing that ultimately the planet's gonna need this so they want to support companies like us who are doing direct air capture and carbon removal today so that in the future, those technologies are available. You're seeing companies like Microsoft and Amazon announce climate funds with the same long-term incentive in mind. When you talk to Amazon, what they say is they want to make investments today that will mean direct air capture and similar technologies will be available at a lower price point in the future. So this movement from the commercial sector is really encouraging because we all know how long it takes for policies to come in at the government level. We all know what happens with governments. You know, we, one day it's a left-leaning government, a couple of years later it's a right-leaning government. So you always have you know, policy um, variation coming from government whereas commercial companies can act today. 
and I'm also really encouraged by the work that um, Mark Carney and the United Nations are doing. Mark Carney is the UN Special Envoy for Climate Change. He was the former governor of the Bank of England. What he is driving for is for disclosure on public company records that shows the impact for those companies to get to net zero. So it's very easy for a large energy company, a Shell or a BP, to say, I'm going to be carbon neutral in 2050. It's a lot harder for them to come up with the plan to get to net zero and show the financial impact. Those types of changes are going to drive more and more awareness and action in climate change. So that's why you see those forward-thinking leading companies starting to take action today. So let me read back to you what I heard about Amazon. So there's lots of technologies out there where the price originally was very high, but then when lots of people want it, the price drops. And then when the price drops, more people want it, right? We saw that in solar. We see it mm -hmm. um, in a range of things. Is that why Amazon's investing in carbon capture? Yeah, I mean, I think Amazon, I mean, obviously, it's a question you'd, you'd need to ask Amazon to get the definitive answer. But from my perspective, companies like Amazon and Microsoft are saying, we're going to need these technologies in the future to get to net zero. And we are in a jurisdiction, in many cases, that require us to get to net zero. So what can we do today to maximize the chance that these technologies will be fully available and low cost in the future so that we as companies can get to net zero? So what investments can we make? How can we help companies um, drive down their costs? You know, we, we have a great relationship with um, Occidental in the oil and gas business. They've really helped us drive down our costs. They understand how to build large chemical plants. So we're working with them to reduce cost. We hope companies like Amazon and Microsoft will also work with us and find other ways we can reduce cost. So tell me just a little bit more about your relationship with Occidental. It's not always the first thing that you think about to be partnering with oil majors uh, as investors and as technical partners when you think about this business. So let me go back to the bathtub again. So we have a technology which is a plug. Pull it out and the water from the bathtub, the CO2 in the atmosphere will begin to drain away. But what lies underneath the plug? So what lies underneath the plug is a plumbing infrastructure to take your water out of the bath and away through a series of pipes and it's gone. So Occidental is one of the world's leading companies in dealing with CO2 and putting it underground. They know how to do it. They've been doing it for 50 years. So we can capture CO2, but I need a partner that knows what to do with it afterwards safely and accountably and permanently. So that's what Occidental bring to the table. They bring the other part of the jigsaw. We capture, they remove. Then you add the fact that they, are, they have a lot of knowledge, individuals with a lot of experience in large chemical plants in dealing with carbon dioxide. Um, and uh, this week, Occidental announced that they would the first US uh, energy company that would be net zero. Um, so I, I see a lot of... Um, uh, intent to be a leading part of the energy transition in Occidental, and then, uh, they're a fantastic partner for us. It's a big announcement. Yeah. So one of the other things my understanding is that Occidental or others like them can do with what you've captured is actually to pump the carbon captured by carbon engineering into uh, like a, an oil area of rocks to push the old oil to the surface, and it 
companies who are oil extractors like it because it helps extract oil from old, difficult to exploit wells. And my understanding is that Occidental's planning to do this um, at one of the new sites that they're helping uh, develop via 1.5. Can you tell me about it and how this fits with your overall goals as a company? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you, you asked earlier on, you said, how are you making money today or intend to make money sooner rather than later? Because we need to make money to be able to survive as a company and, and, and uh, advance our technology. So the process you're talking about is called enhanced oil recovery. It's not fracking, um, just to be very clear for people on that. Uh, enhanced oil recovery puts CO2 underground that dilutes the crude oil that is underneath the ground and allows more of it to be harvested. So when you use direct air capture, you put more CO2 underground from the atmosphere than is contained in the crude that comes out. So stop and think about that for a minute. We just invented carbon neutral fossil fuel. We eliminated the carbon footprint. So enhanced oil recovery with atmospheric CO2 makes carbon neutral crude. And that is a way in which you can decarbonize in parallel with continuing to use those fossil fuels while you transition. And I think that's very powerful. Now, I get criticism for what I just said, because inevitably there are some people who say we should stop all using all fossil fuels today. My assertion is I don't think that's feasible. I think that's a tap we can't turn off, to go back to my bathtub analogy. You've got a squeaky tap in the bathtub. One of those taps with it just keeps dripping. <laughs> There's nothing you can do about it. Um, so I think over time, we will be able to do something about it, just not immediately. So let's decarbonize in parallel. And that's why enhanced oil recovery with um, atmospheric CO2, I think, fits. And then the last thing I'll say, Rebecca, is, of course, it helps us because it allows us to get our technology to market quicker. And the, the more plants we build, the sooner we build them, the lower our costs go the wider the adoption of this technology becomes and the greater impact we have on climate change. You've got to get that flywheel going to allow more you people absolutely to do. Yes. So, so one question about that. Are you at all worried about the moral hazard of people reaching out to turn the tap off in the bathtub and then feeling like, oh, this tap is just so convenient. I don't want to turn it off. And guess what? We've got this plug. Yeah, I, I get that. I get that question a lot, and you know, <laughs> I, think, you might. <laughs> I, I think it does a bit of a disservice to, to to people and and a lot of companies as well. I mean, there's always bad apples and bad actors in any population. But I mean, let me again. I'll give you another analogy. You'll you'll find I'm full of analogies. <laughs> you know, another example would be, you know, I could take my trash out every single night and empty it on the street, and you know, in some quiet place. And I know that somebody will come away, come along and pick it up. But I don't do that. I deal with my trash responsibly. I minimize my trash. I recycle it as much as I can. Uh, I, I don't do the stupid thing. The awareness of climate change is growing and growing and growing. And it is becoming part of the social and corporate responsibility of not just companies, but individuals. I think that will continue to grow no matter what. And to think because we have a tool that we that can clean up CO2, that people won't be bothered about their CO2 footprint. Nah, I just I, I just don't see it. I think the neighbors it, will squint disapprovingly. 
the no, yes, the neighbors will, the, the customers will, the shareholders will. You're seeing that today. Look at the look at the investment funds that are taking money away from industries that have a high carbon footprint. Um, I think this is going to become, I don't know, I'll pick on, you know, well, no, let me choose one that's obviously wrong. I'll, uh, drink driving used to be socially, I won't say acceptable, but nobody really raised a red flag. Now it's utterly and completely socially unacceptable. And I think carbon footprints will go the same way. It's already starting. So let's project out into that future. How do you see the carbon capture space evolving in the next five or 10 years? How do you see your company evolving? So um, I'll go back to one thing I said earlier on. We very strongly believe that a whole suite of solutions are needed for addressing climate change. Direct air capture is not a magic bullet. I'm not proposing that for a second that direct air capture is the single solution. So, but direct air capture does very well in addressing those hard to decarbonize sectors that cost a lot more, or those, those taps, those sectors that are just too difficult to deal with today and need more time. So what I hope is that uh, the world recognizes that carbon removal, removing a CO2 molecule from the atmosphere is as valuable as stopping a CO2 molecule going up in the first place. I like to say that one plus minus one is also zero. There's two ways to get to net zero. And we recognize that having that backstop, having that infrastructure that allows us to eliminate any emission, no matter how difficult it was to stop, is going to become essential. And people recognize that we need to allocate a percentage of our carbon budget to direct air capture. Then we keep doing renewable electricity, we keep doing electric cars, we keep doing all the good things that we're doing as a society to, re to remove our footprint and reduce it. But we are actively working on direct air capture because we know there's going to be some tax we can't turn off. And we need to start that today. So I would like to see policy, interest, support, government action around building that infrastructure and starting to do so today so we get the cost down in the future. You mentioned, um, sorry, Rebecca, one more thing. You yeah, mentioned solar. You mentioned solar earlier on. And solar is a great example. The costs of solar have come down a lot. Imagine if we'd put a lot of money into solar 10 years earlier, then the costs would have reduced faster and the re renewable energy usage today would be higher because the cost would have come down sooner and our carbon footprint would be lower. So starting early, reducing the cost of direct air capture, because we will reduce it further, um, gives you a tool and a capability that are going to be needed. So start today. So let's just talk about how you're doing that. You've set up and developed all this technology, and then you made an interesting choice. You decided to license it out to plant partners rather than doing it all yourself. Can you tell me why? Yeah, so I mean, it, it comes down to just the to just the sheer colossal size of the carbon problem. You know, we could never build enough plants ourselves to deal with this problem. So, uh, just as our technology is focused on large scale and scalability, our business plan needs to have the same focus. So, by licensing our technology, hopefully to many many different companies and governments worldwide. In parallel, all of those licensors are building our plants. 
we focus on improving our technology. We don't get distracted by you know, buying the land in a particular location or constructing the plant. We just focus on continually improving the efficiency and cost of our technology. And our partners are building plants worldwide. So you're making way. it cheaper and cheaper the way solar did. And someone else is figuring out all the rooftops for your, your plants. Yeah, because, so you know, speak. a guy who understands how to build a plant in China, that's a different skill set than a guy who understands how to build one in, in, um, in, I don't know, in Texas or Colorado or here in Canada. So let the experts do that. Uh, we'll focus on what we really do best. And you do have licenses with folks in the U.S. and the U.K., is that correct? Yeah, in the United States, we're, we're partnered with um, a company called 1.5 after the 1.5 degree um, requirement that the scientists have, have put on us. Uh, 1.5 is a combination of Occidental, superb partner for us, and a company called Rasheen that has, uh, uh, has been in the renewable energy and um, low carbon business for many years, a financial entity. In the United Kingdom, we're working with Pale Blue Dot. Um, they are working on a carbon capture plant in northern Scotland with sequestering CO2 in the North Sea. You know, when you think about where are you going to put this CO2, one of the ironies, and you touched on it a little bit earlier on, one of the ironies is the very best places to put CO2 are the holes in the ground you created with our extractive industries. So, the so North the, wherever sea. oil had taken it out. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. You created a hole in the ground. I mean, I'm being simplistic. There's obviously a little bit more <laughs> nuance to it than that. But think of it very simply that way. That means the opportunity for countries like the United States, Canada, um, the Middle East, the North Sea, those areas have a huge opportunity in uh, you know, building an industry to address um, carbon sequestration. So you're saying jobs that are going away or decreasing because those oil wells have dried up potentially have a new set of jobs that could come to them. That's the mindset change that when the politicians get it, that's going to be very interesting because absolutely those same and, and it's not just the areas, it's the skill sets, the individuals, the actual people, the actual people who understand how to build extractive industries are the same people who will have the skills who understand build plants that put stuff back in the ground again. So, you know, th there's an irony in that, of course, and some people will say we can't, you know, reward the, um, the people who created the climate problem. I think that's a little harsh. We created the climate problem, you and I, and our parents and everybody else we know. We're the customers of electricity and energy. So we're just as responsible. So for me, um, you know, when I, when I had the opportunity to move to carbon engineering, uh, the company was looking for somebody who could help get their technology into the world. They had this fantastic widget, um, but how do you get adoption of that? You know, all those questions you asked me earlier on about how do you generate a market? How do you get public interest and policy support? How do you find the partners that can fill all the missing pieces in. We were a 20-person company when I took over carbon engineering, and we're trying to, trying to build a tool that can help save the world. So it's really hard to get that message out there when you're a 20-person company. So uh, that's what the company was trying to find. And you know, in, in my career, I'd, I'd spent time and energy on, on taking complicated technology, which isn't cheap, and trying to to, to bring it to the commercial world. 
which is a combination of working with government and commercial companies. So that's why they were after somebody like me. For me, I have to tell you, it was a 10-second decision. <laughs> that's uh, not very long. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. But but the, the mission of the company... Um, I think is so important. I, you know, I have kids. Um, I'm very aware of the danger and impact of climate change. And uh, to be able to play a role in doing something to help fix it, uh, it's just a complete no-brainer. So, yeah, I was delighted. Well, Steve, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today here on Climate Rising. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for your interest. And uh, you know, I hope your listeners go out into the world and, and uh, take a very thoughtful and constructive approach to addressing climate change. We have to do it. That's it for this episode of Climate Rising and for season three of the show. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Rebecca Emanuel. Climate Rising is produced by the Business and Environment Initiative at Harvard Business School. This episode was created with the help of associate producer Mika McFarlane, HBS Class of 2020, and producer Mary Dew. Thanks, as always, to the team from the HBS Business and Environment Initiative that created and supported the podcast, Mike Toffel, Jennifer Nash, Lynn Shank, and Elise Clarkson. You can subscribe to Climate Rising on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Please leave us a review. We appreciate the feedback. You can also find show notes and links to resources discussed on this episode on the Climate Rising homepage, climaterising.hbs.edu.